Andre Agassi is a retired professional tennis player, and he dominated the courts in the late 90s and early 2000s before he retired in 2006. And soon after his career was over, uh, finished, he uh, uh, wrote a memoir and listened to what he said in his memoirs. This is a paragraph from his book. I hate tennis. I hate it with a dark, secret passion and always have. I hate tennis, hate it with all my heart, and still I keep playing, keep hitting all morning and all afternoon because I have no choice. No matter how much I want to stop, I don't. I keep begging myself to stop, and still I keep playing. And this gap, this contradiction between what I want to do and what I actually do feels like the core of my life. Now that's a sad paragraph. It's a sad paragraph because on the one hand, you would like to think that your athletic heroes, our athletic heroes, are on the court or on the field with joy, that they're, that they're living their dreams by playing and not doing something that they hate so much. But at least in one person's case, it was not, it's not true. The other thing I think about when I read this paragraph is that I understand exactly what he's saying because I'm a Christian. By that I mean I have turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. I, there is within me, uh, there are within me thoughts and actions and attitudes and values that dishonor God, my creator. And because of, of those attitudes and values and actions and words and thoughts, I am worthy of his righteous wrath. But I have turned to Jesus for forgiveness. And I have heard his call in the scriptures to live a holy life. But my problem is I just can't stop sinning. And I bet you have the same problem. And I bet if you're a follower of Jesus, it bothers you worse now than it used to before you became a follower of Jesus. There is a conflict that's at the core of your life too, and sometimes it drives you to despair. You see the things that you do, you hear the thoughts as they run through your mind, or you notice the words that come out of your mouth, and you think, what, what is wrong with me? Am I even, can I even be a Christian if this is the sort of things that I do or the sort of things that I say? Or it, it makes you avoid reading your Bible or praying, or I can't go to church, you know what kind of week I've had, I am unworthy and unqualified to claim even to be a Christian. It can drive you to despair. I want you to think about that despair because I think it will help you understand the passage of Scripture that I want to direct your attention to this morning. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4 is where I want to direct your attention. Is there anyone who really understands the battles you have with temptation? Is there anybody who really understands what it's like? Is there anybody who can rescue you from your failures? We're going to return to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Um, we took a, a coronavirus sabbatical from the Gospel of Matthew, but we're back in it today. And I want you to remember the, the theme that we've been following. I borrowed this from a pastor, Douglas Sean O'Donnell. He says in the basis of what Jesus said in Matthew 28, that Matthew is a book that reminds us that Jesus has all authority over all nations, 
is worthy of all of our allegiance and is always with us. And you can see those four elements all the way through uh, this book. We've kind of been tracing them. And the first few chapters uh, argue why Jesus is worthy of our allegiance. And that continues in chapter 4 where we find his victorious encounter with his enemy and with, his, with ours. Jesus is the one who understands what it's like to face temptations And he's the one who can rescue you from your failures and the despair that results from them. That's the point of this passage. I'm going to read it, and then we'll unfold it uh, this morning. So Matthew 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Is there anyone who understands my temptation? Is there anyone who really understands this conflict that I go through and the pressure that I feel to do what I know is not right? And the answer to that question is yes, Jesus is the one who understands. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a lot of wonderful things about friendship. Here's something he said. Friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. That sentence works for good or for ill, doesn't it? What? You cheer for the 49ers? I thought I was the only one. Or, You like to shop at that store too? I used to back in the glory days shop at that store. You do too. Or, for ill, you lost a son in the war too? Yeah. You're an alcoholic too? Yeah. You've been tempted too? And Jesus says, yes, I understand. I understand what it's like. A few minutes ago, Ed read from the book of Hebrews, and uh, the author of Hebrews, so we read the story of the temptation of Matthew 4, and the Holy Spirit wanted us to think more deeply about it, so he inspired the author of the book of Hebrews to write about the temptation and think more carefully about it and how it applies. And remember what Ed read. I'm going to read Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 again. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So here's the application. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
So here's the application. There is one who understands. There is one who understands the temptation, the pressure that you feel, and it is the Lord Jesus. Now, that's how Hebrews, Hebrews kind of makes the, the point directly. Matthew makes that point very subtly. And the way Matthew makes the point is by showing us how Jesus is reliving the career of the nation of Israel. What they experience as a nation, Jesus has experienced as a person. You can see that in the first few chapters. So in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus, God calls Jesus, his son, to go down into Egypt, just like he had sent the Israelites down into Egypt. And he, just like he called Israel out of Egypt, God called his son Jesus out of Egypt. Just like Israel went into the water of the Red Sea to escape slavery, so Jesus went into the waters of baptism. And just like Israel, the nation, went into the wilderness for 40 years to be tested by God, so Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested by God. You can see that parallelism that, Jesus, uh, that Matthew is bringing out because Jesus here in his quotations, when he quotes the Bible to Satan, he quotes from the early chapters of Deuteronomy. And those are the passages in Deuteronomy where Moses is reviewing with Israel their history. And, and Jesus borrows from Moses there. Here's the things Moses is saying to the people. You should have known. If you had known these things and believed these things, you would not have failed in the desert like you did. So Jesus is reliving Israel's experience. Where their, but whereas their story is a story of failure, his is a story of faithfulness. Or you can think about this perhaps. Jesus in comparison to Adam and Eve Adam and Eve in the beautiful Garden of Eden, they can eat any tree they want except one. They have all of their needs met in this beautiful garden. They have fellowship with God. The tempter comes and they succumb. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's fasting. He meets the same tempter. And when the tempter tempts Jesus, he succeeds where Adam failed. Now, some people might ask the question, thinking Christians might ask the question, how is it that Jesus' temptations can be real? Or he could be really tempted? Because James 1 says, God cannot be tempted by evil. So how can Jesus, he's God in the flesh, how can his temptations be real? Well, uh, that's a great question. If you're thinking about the godness of Jesus, the God in the flesh of Jesus, and the nature of his temptation here in Matthew 4, makes you think that Hebrews 4, about his temptations being real, is not true, then something is wrong with the way you're thinking about the incarnation. Something's wrong with the way you're thinking about him being God the Son and facing temptation here. Because Hebrews says they were very real, these temptations. Now, there are some differences, I should admit this. There are differences between the way Jesus was tempted and the way I'm tempted, the way you're tempted. Hebrews is about the similarity, so is Matthew. Let me just mention a couple of the differences. Maybe they will help us unfold this passage even more. When I'm tempted and when you're tempted, I face temptation from both without and within. Whereas Jesus faced temptation only from without. Your problem... My problem is that you have a traitor inside of you. You have a rebel inside of you. Your broken heart, your sin nature, the Bible uses, this inner disposition that you have to sin so that when external temptation comes, it has an internal response. The temptation comes and your heart says, ooh, that would be good. We would like that very much. That would feel nice if we do that. 
Jesus did not have that internal temptation because he did not have that sin nature. He faced external temptation. But here's another bit of the differences. The external temptation that Jesus faced, he faced it without limit to the fullest extent possible, and he didn't surrender. And you have, and I have, countless times. C.S. Lewis, again, I'm going to quote him. He says, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it, not by giving in. Uh, C.S. Lewis fought in World War I. He was alive in World War II. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it, has, what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And yet Jesus resisted all of the external temptation that came and he experienced it to the fullest extent possible and he never surrendered. Um, I like the wind. The wind is my favorite force of nature. I don't know if you have a favorite force of nature, but mine is the wind. Um, I like warm summer evening breezes. I like crisp fall wind. I even like bitter cold February wind, as long as it's accompanied by a lot of snow. Except there's one type of wind I don't like very much. It sends me inside. I don't like March wind. You know, it comes in March. It's gray outside. It's near the end of winter. It usually comes with rain, and it's that cold, cold rain that's just so awful, and it drives me inside. I don't like it. The Bible tells us here that Jesus experienced all of the full force of the gale of temptation that was arrayed against him, and he did not surrender. He did not go inside. He did not quit. And as he walks through this opposition that he receives, the Bible tells us he reaches out his hand to you and I, and he says, take my hand. Come with me. I've been through this windstorm before. You can manage it. I will help you. I will give you the strength that you need to make it through this season of temptation. My most urgent need in the midst of temptation is to take the help that the Savior offers. To look for the way out that he promised in 1 Corinthians 10 and to take him, take the grace and mercy that he offers. Because he has been in that temptation before and he has emerged victoriously. He understands and helps us with grace and mercy. Is there anyone who understands my temptation, this conflict? Yes, Jesus does. There's a second question that we can approach, though, uh, come to when we approach Matthew 4. Is there anyone who can rescue you from your temptations? Is there anyone who can rescue you from your temptations? Um, not just from your temptations, but is there anyone who can rescue you from your failures? Your, your, when you succumb to temptation, who can help you with this conflict that's at the core of your life and rescue you from your failure? And the answer in Matthew 4, Jesus is the champion that we need. Jesus has succeeded where Israel and Adam and you have failed. 
to put it in more colloquial terms, right? Jesus did your homework. He finished it. A plus work. He ran your race in record time, I might point out. He completed your project. He finished your chores. He fulfilled your contracts. He weeded your garden. He dusted your house. He folded your laundry. He got all of your projects done. Everything that you have failed to do, he did it, and he did it perfectly. This is really at the, at the center of what we believe as followers of Jesus. All of my failure as a human being, all of my sin, all of the thoughts and the words and the actions that dishonor God were assigned to the Lord Jesus, and he died on the cross paying the penalty for those sins. And all of his record of of perfect obedience that's in full color here in this passage in Matthew 4, all of this resistance, all of this goodness that's here has been assigned to me and assigned to you by faith so that your record is pristine in the halls of heaven. That's, that's the good news. And this passage screams us that we are, we are on the stands looking at Matthew 4, seeing Jesus carry the ball across the goal line time and time and time again. And every time he crosses the line, we stand up and say, yes, yes, that's my player right there. I'm going to go buy the Jesus jersey. I'm going to wear it all week because he's the champion that I need. He won. I can't do that on the field. I fumble, I drop passes. I run the opposite direction of my end zone. But, but Jesus is the one who, who, who was victorious. Now we should think about these temptations here a little bit more specifically for a minute. The point of this passage is that Jesus is the one who beat temptation when we could not. That's the point of this passage. But there is help for us here because the temptations that Jesus experienced are common to all of us. <coughs> Frankly, we struggle with that a little bit. Um, we struggle sometimes to put the specific temptations that Jesus encountered uh, and match them to the roots that are common to us all. See, I've never been tempted to turn bread, stones into bread. I've never had that uh, temptation because I, I don't have that ability. But underneath that specific temptation that the God-man experienced here is the same root of the, temptation that I, the temptations that I experienced. Let me see if I can unfold that by sharing with you three key words that I want you to think about with this passage. The first word is desire, desire. James 1 tells us that part of our problem with temptation is that we are lured away by our evil desires. Remember I talked about your broken heart, your deceitful and desperately wicked heart. You have sin, a sin nature. God made us human beings with desires. He made, them with good, made us with good desires. Our desires have been twisted by sin. Jesus has, these, has similar desires. His are not twisted by sin, but he still has these desires. You can see this how Satan is trying to exploit his good desire for food. Um, the temptation is to provide for himself without regard for the will or word of God. Look, Jesus, you've got this desire. And, and God doesn't appear to be meaning it at this point in time. Just go ahead and, and take care of yourself. You're, feed yourself. Just do what you need to do. And the tempter does the same thing in your life with your desires. Look, this is something that you want. Can you really trust that God is going to provide this for you? Desire. 
I think in the second temptation, there's the desire for security. Does God really love you? Maybe, maybe you should do something that would help him prove it. Maybe if you're anxious, maybe you just need to uh, uh, make God prove that he loves you. And, and, and you'll have more security, the desire for security. The third temptation seems to revolve around the, the desire for comfort, the desire for comfort. God had promised Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Someday they'll be his. Satan is offering him the same thing. But the devil is offering him the kingdoms of the world without the cross. I'll give you the kingdom without the cross. The desire for comfort. Second word here, doubt. Doubt. All three of these temptations have to do with doubting the goodness of God. This is what Satan did to Eve in the garden, remember? God's holding out on you. He's not giving you all the good things that he can. Um, Jesus, if you really are God's son, why are you hungry? God certainly wouldn't let his son be hungry like you are. If you're really God's son, why are you going to have to die on the cross? If you were really God's son, if God really loved you, he wouldn't ask you to go to the cross. Doubt. How many of your temptations have roots in doubt? Third word, discernment. Discernment. Satan is singing a song, but he's slightly off tune. And Jesus has the ear to pick that up. He recognizes the melody, but Satan is off. He's not quite right. That's particularly true in the second temptation when he quotes from the Psalms in verse 6. And Jesus is able to correct him. He knows the true melody. He says to, to Satan, no, that's not right. You're not singing the right song. This is why we're Bible people. We are Bible people because we are trying to attune our ears to recognize false things when we hear them. We want our ears tuned so we recognize untruths when they come. Jesus wins here in this passage, and he wins for us on our behalf as our representative. One of the great poems that the United States has produced, and I imagine many children read it in elementary school, is Casey at the Bat by Ernest Lawrence Thayer. Do you know this poem? Uh, I learned this poem, I think, because Warner Brothers made a cartoon of it, and I used to watch it. Uh, Casey at the Bat. So Casey at the Bat is about a baseball game. It takes place in Mudville. The Mudville Nine are behind in the bottom of the ninth inning. There, uh, there's uh, two outs two runners on base, and, and up to bat is Casey. And Casey goes into the batter's box, and the, cheer, the crowd cheers because it's Casey, mighty Casey at the bat. He's their best hitter. Surely this is the time that we're going to win. The problem is that Casey is an arrogant cuss. And he just stands there and lets the pitch, first pitch go by, strike one. And the second pitch comes by, he just stands there, strike two. Then finally he takes his stance and is ready. And the pitch comes across the plate and Casey swings and he misses. And Mudville loses. Here's the last stanza of that poem. Oh, somewhere in this favored land the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. Their hero went to the, bait, went to the plate and, and didn't deliver. Not so, this may be the way it is in Mudville, but not so in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ.
I know where the sun is shining bright. I know where the band is playing. I know where the hearts are light. I know where people are laughing and children are shouting. There is joy in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because our champion has won. He has emerged victoriously in every way on our behalf for us. That is the best news possible. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you today and we are thankful to you for our Lord Jesus Christ, our victor, who on our behalf took on our enemy. Lord, we, we are in this room and we confess we are failures. We have succumbed to temptation time and time again. We do not measure up to your standards, but there is one who has met your standards in every way. And he is our champion, our hero. Lord, I pray today that you would help us, that you would rescue us from the despair that we often feel because of our failures. That we would have more thoughts of the great success of the Lord Jesus than we do have great sorrow over our own failure that we might think more highly of his faithfulness than we do of our faithlessness. And so we might be people of joy. Lord, I pray too that you would help us as we even, we see him uh, pushing against the desires and the doubts and the discernment that we might embrace them too, that we might walk in the steps of our great champion, our hero. Fill us with joy as we think of this, our great Savior, the Lord Jesus, our victor over sin and death, risen and ascended at your right hand. We pray these things in his name as his people, saying, Amen.